Welcome to the Epiphany Lutheran Church podcast. These messages, based on a biblical text, interpreting the hearer's situation, informed by Christian teaching, creatively proclaim the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth for forgiveness and new life starting now. Epiphany Lutheran Church is located in South City, St. Louis, Missouri. Our vision is to be a community that puts Jesus first, neighbors second, and ourselves third by gathering to be served by him so we can grow to love as he loves. Learn more at epiphany-stl.org. That's epiphany-stl.org. Text for our sermon today is the Gold Testament reading, the account of the fall into sin. Reading just a couple of verses here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is our text. Lent is certainly not the most popular season in the church. Not everyone, it seems, is fond of hymns and typically minor keys, and most people tend not to get too excited about all the expected introspection and self-examination. Compared to the other penitential season of Advent, Lent doesn't seem to offer quite as much. I mean, in Advent, it's December, and everyone's getting busy, ready for Christmas, so they can be ready to go. But in Lent, no one outside the church pays much attention to the fact, and getting ready for Easter isn't nearly as complicated or time-consuming as getting ready for Christmas. Who needs to spend much time doing their Easter shopping? So in Lent, there's just not much planning to do. Lent is all there is to do in Lent. While the world around us is going spring with bunnies and flowers and little fluffy chicks and all their pretty pastel colors, the church subjects its people to somber music, low-key worship, and melancholy colors. No celebrating during Lent. I suspect, though, that the most widely likely reason for the lack of enthusiasm for this season of Lent has less to do with the mood and the music than it does with the much more significant part of Lent. The problem people have with Lent boils down to one thing, I think. It boils down to sin. The thing you can't escape during Lent is sin. Again and again in Lent, we're confronted with the reality of sin, and we're compelled to think about the sin that fills our own lives. It's the common element all through the season, and it's the part that no one much likes about Lent. I mean, if Lent was just about the lengthening days of spring, like the name Lent says, and if it was just about getting ready for Easter and thinking about Jesus and Jesus' passion, it'd be a whole lot more popular. But all the sin stuff kind of ruins what could have been good. No one likes discussing sin, at least not when it's their own sin that's the topic. And yet, like it or not, it is indeed Lent. It is time once again to come face to face with sin, and yes, your own sin. If the contemplation of sin is the theme of Lent, 
there probably is no better place to begin than with Genesis chapter 3, the story of the first sin. Starting at the very beginning with sin number one is quite fitting. And there is a lot we can learn from this ancient tragedy that took place in the Garden of Eden. In the sin of Adam, we see the root cause of our own personal fallen and broken state. His sin is our sin. We call this original sin. You were born with it. Because of the hereditary nature of sin, you bear Adam's own proclivity or tendency to mess up and fall into sin. But even worse and even more disturbing, you also bear the guilt for his sin. That's the harsh reality of original sin. But the first sin is also significant because that very first sin sets the pattern for all sin to follow. Let's think about how that played out. See, God had made it crystal clear. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Makes no difference what kind of tree it might have been. What matters is what it embodied. The tree was the concrete, physical, specific limits on Adam. It marked the difference between the creator and the creature. God alone needed to know good and evil. The creature, Adam, only needed to know God's will. The tree then was Adam's limit. And the tree was good. It reminded Adam of who and what he was as the creature of God. By leaving that tree alone and being a good creature, Adam honored and worshiped God. Martin Luther even called the tree of knowledge of good and evil Adam's place of worship, Adam's church, because by not eating the fruit from that tree, Adam was living obediently and so was worshiping God, the creator. But Adam couldn't do it. He couldn't leave it alone. He had to taste it. We heard the whole sad story again this morning. The serpent played his role. Eve played hers. Together they had a discussion about what exactly God had and had not said about, and they had a discussion contemplating why God might have said what he had said. And as intended, the conversation created a fierce storm of confusion for Eve, and in no time the beguiled, confused woman had been tricked into thinking that maybe God didn't know what he was talking about and maybe she could take a giant step upward by eating the fruit that promised to give her the wisdom of God. The circumstances don't really matter that much. Regardless how sneaky the snake might have been or what motivations might have been at work in Eve's mind, or even what role Adam did or did not play in relation to Eve's bad choice. None of that really matters. The plain fact is that Adam ate the fruit. Adam chose to reject God's will. Adam scoffed at God's command. Adam rebelled against his creator. And that is the essence of the first sin, and that is the essence of every sin. Sin is simply 
rebellion against God. Sin is the refusal to do what God designed and directed you to do. Sin is willful repudiation of God's plan. It's defiant rejection of God himself. Given the circumstances that that surrounded that first sin, and given the enormous consequences of that first sin, it's probably inevitable that we wonder why. I mean, Adam and Eve were living in paradise, for crying out loud. Everything was good and right and working exactly as God designed it to be. What possible reason could either Adam or Eve have for choosing to disobey God when they already had everything? When surrounded by life in all of its fullness, why choose death? It makes no sense. We can't help wondering why it happened. This is, of course, the typical way that usually we respond to sin. The more horrific and the more devastating, the more we need to know the reason behind it. We try to analyze and understand the reason for the sin in the hope that such knowledge might help to lessen or mitigate the horror of the sin. We think that if we know why the appalling crime was committed, well, then it's maybe not quite so unsettling or quite so frightening. But it doesn't work. Truth is that there is never a good reason for sin. It does no good to analyze, dissect, or seek to understand it. In fact, there is actually a danger in trying to understand the reasons for sin because to explain sin is to tame sin and to tame sin is always dangerous in stark contrast to us and our curiosity about why some sin happened the bible shows no interest in analyzing or explaining sin and its cause there are some whopper sins recorded in the bible they aren't explained whether it's the sin of David or Peter or Moses or Abraham or Judas or anyone anywhere in the Bible no effort is made to offer a reason for their sin the sin is simply reported as fact and so very often the sin is quite absurd making no more sense than the sin of Adam and Eve. As much as we might like to know what was going on in the minds of our first parents on that terrible day when they chose to defy God, God doesn't seem to be the least bit interested in what they were thinking or why they did what they did. When he confronted Adam and Eve, he only asked them what they had done. Never asks why. I hate that. When it comes to sin, I want to know why. I want to explain why. Why matters to me. It doesn't matter to God. God never asks you why you sin. He doesn't care. Your family of origin, your environment, your personality, your hormones, 
your situation, your motivations, your needs, your intentions, none of it matters. None of it makes a bit of difference. God's not interested. Sin is sin. Caught in their sin, Adam and Eve stand before their creator spattered and stinking with the shame of sin. There are no mitigating circumstances. There is no reasonable explanation to lessen their guilt. There is nothing sensible about it. There is only their naked, traitorous, repugnant sin, the rejection of God's will. Just their sin. That's all they've got. And it's the same for you and your sin, isn't it? And so you also are right there, standing next to your ancient grandparents, guilty of sin. You're there, sandwiched right between Adam and Eve, equally spattered with sin's filth. Like them, you are repulsive in every way. There are no reasonable explanations. There is no manageable cause and effect scenario to make sense of your sinful actions. There are no whys. There's only the ugly what of your sin. Adam and you. And Eve and you. And you. And me. And you. And you. We're all there. All of us lined up, standing before our Creator, wicked, wretched, and reeking of sin. And what does the Creator do? There is but one reasonable course of action. There's only one thing that would make sense. These sinners must be condemned. These sinners must be consigned to hell, where they can pay the penalty for their crime of rebellion against their Creator. The slate cleared, the Creator could then make a fresh start with new creatures, creatures who are not polluted by the senseless choice of sin. That's the reasonable response. That's the one that makes sense. That's what God should do. Of course, that's not what He does. God rejects the reasonable response, and instead, He does the most bizarre thing imaginable. He actually joins the sorry, sad lineup of sinners, steps to the front of the line, and makes certain that he will be the first and the only one to receive the just punishment that is demanded. In Jesus, the eternal Son, God himself joins his creation and then endures the damnation the sinners deserve. Jesus, God in human flesh, suffers the hell. Jesus suffers your hell. God the Father damns God the Son for the sake of Adam and Eve and you and me. God's action is utterly irrational, inexplicable. The only thing more senseless and more absurd than sin is grace. Adam should get condemnation, but he gets grace. Eve should be damned, but she gets grace. You should be sent to hell, but you get grace. What makes no sense, 
God does. What no one could anticipate, God chooses. What no one could predict, God brings to pass. The sinners are saved not by reasonable explanations for their sin and not by an account of the hard circumstances that led up to their sin and not by careful defenses of the good intentions behind their sin. No, they are saved only by God's incredible, irrational grace that they do not deserve. In the garden, God delivers grace and he brings Satan's own words back against him. Satan, remember, twisted the word of God. But God gets the last word and the serpent's own words to Eve boomerang around and destroy Satan's evil work. The deceiver's lie is turned to truth. You will not surely die. The lie had dripped off the tongue of the snake saccharine sweets and Eve foolishly obligingly swallowed the sweet lie and suddenly all was lost but God was not done and God would not be outdone by any creature Satan never saw it coming and neither did Adam or Eve Satan counted on God's justice and wrath against sin Satan did not count on God's grace. The deceiver could not have guessed that his lie would be turned into a prophecy of grace. But that's the way that God works. God is not easily boxed by any creature. And so in spite of himself, the snake was right. He spoke truth. Eve did not surely die Jesus did Adam did not surely die Jesus did you will not surely die Jesus already did against his own perverse will the snake was made to speak God's truth In Genesis 3 we have the gospel the gospel according to the snake you will not surely die no, indeed, you won't. God already did. Because of Christ, you will surely live. God will bring it to pass on the day of resurrection. Sin is a big part of the Lenten season. Sin looms large. Sin is illogical, defies explanation. It is powerful. But as irrational, absurd, comprehensive and powerful as sin may be more irrational more absurd more comprehensive more powerful is God's grace it's true Lent is all about sin but Lent is even more about God's grace God's grace for you don't ruin God's grace with reason Simply receive it with rejoicing. Amen. We praise you, Lord God, for your grace, your astounding, confounding grace that overcomes even the absurdity, pain, and death of our sin. Amen.